Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. In the spiritual abuse community, there are some people who say, you know what, here's the solution to spiritual abuse. Just get rid of religion altogether. I just don't think my clients should be religious and then they won't be abused. Now, I have a big problem with that perspective uh, because it goes against the preponderance of the best evidence we have that shows that church and religion are on the whole good for people. They lead to human flourishing. Uh, some of the conversation with Joey Holman 
recently kind of got at some of those things that were really great about his youth group experience and my youth group experience. But of course, it's not just for kids. It's for adults as well. There are marriage health statistics. There are, you know, all kinds of stuff. We're, we're going to get into it today. This is the episode where every time you've heard me say something like, yeah, church or religion is good for people. Uh, this is the evidence. Greg is going to walk us through it. And he uh, did a dive into this stuff for me. I'm very grateful to him for doing that. Um, you've heard him before. He was the guest on the very popular uh, Universalism and Hell in a Global Context episode. And he's just going to walk through this with us. So, yeah, you know, I, I do want to say one thing, and I, I, I don't remember if we talk about this. We had the conversation a long time ago um, before I'm recording this intro, which is just yesterday. Um, but for some people, obviously, church, especially if it is abusive, is not going to lead to flourishing, at least not for a while. And so this is not a conversation about all people, even those who have had really damaging experiences. This is a conversation about the statistically average person, that when you balance all this stuff out over a large population, what kind of effects do you see? There are still individual differences, of course. But on the whole, if you had to flip a coin, this is the most likely outcome for people, basically. That's sort of the broad context here. I wanted to make sure that that was clear. And I don't think there's much else to say. So let's get into it with Greg. Greg Kutsona, man, thank you so much for returning. This is, I believe, your third appearance. You are now, you're joining the ranks of like the the Sarah Lane Richies of the world. And very, very happy, happy to do that. Yeah. I need to explain why you're here because I think it reflects very well on you. I wanted to do an episode on what we might call, you know, the social scientific benefits of church and religion. I know that that's not the only thing that matters. I know, you know, I'm a good enough Kierkegaardian to know that, like, there's something ineffable about committing to a religious path. I'm enough of a mystic to know that I can't quantify my own interactions with God. But that doesn't mean that the social scientific, the, the quantifiable stuff is not important. And especially as I become a parent and I start thinking about my son and this comes up all the time with friends and listeners of this show. Like now I've got kids and now I'm thinking about all this stuff and do we raise them in church? And and for that kind of decision making, especially with a kid who's, you know, I don't know what kind of mystical experiences kids can have for a while. They're not going to the kind of Kierkegaardian stuff is not going to appeal to them. It's not going to make any sense. But all this other stuff really will matter. I want them to have I want him to have friends that don't lead him down the wrong path. I want him to feel uh, accepted and loved. I want him to have social support. I want him to be disincentivized from using drugs and engaging in risky sexual behaviors, right? right. Like all this right. kind of stuff that we're going to talk about. I want him to be resilient. I want him to build virtues. So this stuff does matter. And I, you know, it's not end all be all. This is not you can't reduce religion to the quantifiable benefits, but I don't think they should be ignored either. Right, right, yeah. And so I was going to talk to uh, this woman, Dr. Thema Bryant-Davis. She's a professor at Pepperdine, but she does like short form stuff, like 30-minute interviews. And I was like, nope, there's too much to get through. <laughs> so I told her, I was like, I'm going to have my friend Greg do it, and we're just going to reference your work. There we go. go. I like that. And That's she was good. like, great, sounds good. So um, <laughs> she she's done a ton of great work. Uh, in my notes here, I have her listed three or four times as references. 
for some of these articles and stuff. But basically, here's why you are a rock star. You were like, yes, I will do my own, do your own deep dive into the research and come back with an outline and a bunch of notes to talk with you, Dan. And and so basically, you you just researched like an undergraduate class worth of information on this topic just to give to us for free. And I'm very grateful. Well, I appreciate that. I, yeah, I mean, I'm actually also very interested in this topic and the particular angle that fascinates me is what is the church going to be like after COVID? And the reason that has gotten me into these topics is what is it about church that we are, that is healthy for us or, you know, active religious life that's healthy for us, that we're losing. And if we go back, what will it look like to go back and what will be replaced? And that's gotten me then kind of also after, you know, decades of conversations about is church life good for you to, to think about, well, what is this world we're going to be uh, in, inhabiting um, maybe by the end of this year? So that's the particular right. angle. You're right. Yeah. You, you, did, you gave me the lead and I just thought this is so interesting and so worthwhile. Well, I hope that you do basically end up pitching a class based on this research and you can get something else out of it as well. Uh, turn this into a syllabus. You know, actually, I think I might, that actually might be coming, as a matter of fact, now that you mentioned yeah. it. That's good. <laughs> good. Okay, good. Then it, it was uh, multiple uses. But for instance, I was texting with Jim Wellman from UW, the the religion researcher. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, know, I know you know his work. You might even yeah. know him personally. I do not um, know him personally, but he's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, dude, what do you think is going to be the effects of COVID on sort of middle America, by which I mean more middle income, like, you know, working class America, middle class America in evangelical settings? And he thinks, I think it will be an absolute disaster. I think mm. you will just have millions of people who mm. were basically getting free pseudotherapy by going to church and yeah. having all the best things in their lives, being reminded of those things weekly. You know, this is a slightly rosy picture depending on what kind of church you're going to, but just an average, not super narcissistic pastor, not super abusive mega church setting. You, you're getting reminded of your, your family, uh, love for neighbor. You're working through your own failures, coded as yeah. sin. And he's yeah. just like, just tens of millions of people might stop getting that. It's like, imagine 10 million people stop going to therapy all at once. What are the yeah. consequences of that? They're bad. Well, and, and most people who go to church will go to their pastor before they will go to a therapist. So, I mean, thankfully, mm. in my own training to be a pastor, uh, doing pastoral tra uh, you know, care and counseling was actually part of what I had, had to do. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but it was part of the, they it said, was, you yeah. need this. Right. And, uh, you know, pastors do provide that for people. And then, I mean, you think about Tyler uh, Vanderweel's stuff on as a person at Harvard on in public health, like this is actually a public health question. You know what I mean? In addition to the, 100%. You know, the social, the social, uh, you know, psychological benefits, it's like there may be actual, you know, physical health correlates to having all this religious life taken from us. Well, at some point we'll perhaps get the right language for this, whether, what do we, you know, virtual religious life versus in-person or whatever, but it seems like that in-person religious life, is really significant. Those are where you see a, a high correlation with the positive outcomes for, you know, for health, for mental health, for physical health, etc. And that immediately makes me think of teenagers because one of the things that I think those of us who have been kind of amateur COVID readers around the social science 
teenagers get brought up a lot as like they're kind of in a stage where it's very difficult for them not to be around their peers in a way that grade schoolers and babies and adults don't quite have Uh, something about just their stage of development. And a lot of the research that I'll be quoting and I imagine a lot of yours as well deals with adolescents and teenagers. Yeah. And it's a very vulnerable time. A lot of trajectories are set during that time and teenagers are just profoundly in-person social creatures, maybe more so than any other time of life. Uh, And, you know, that's certainly true of of my own experience anecdotally, you know, coming home like like a an average summer evening junior year of high school is like how many of our friends can we get together like any night of the week, you know, just like in a way that I just don't do anymore. And that's fine. I'm kind of past that stage of life anyway. So I want to start with a broad overview, like really just kind of a couple bullet points of the conclusions that you've come to because. This is going to be a long episode. People aren't going to get through the whole thing. <laughs> so if people don't, like, what are, like, the three or four takeaways that, that you think this is what we're going to unpack, and then we'll unpack it in more detail? I could do this in, like, 90 seconds, if you don't mind, and then we'll, Good. like, yeah. um, it, it will structure, a, you know, a more free-flowing conversation. From the research that I've read, social scientific research, it supports the conclusion that religious life or being religiously active is good for our health. So we probably should work with that term religious at some point, because that for some people is a little bit of uh, trips you up, but this is positive. This is close to spirituality, I would say. And so by good, I mean that it's good for us as individuals and it correlates with things like physical health, mental resilience and happiness and pro-social behavior. In terms of society, it seems like uh, overall the correlation between religious life it's high again for altruism, which of course is social cohesion, pro-social behavior, like I mentioned before, obviously is good for society. That's, that's what it means, of course. But there's that downside of religion seems to, religious life seems to increase prejudice. And uh, we can get into that. It, in other words, this is a distinction that uh, Robert Putnam at Harvard put together. It is good at bonding or in-group social capital but not, not really always very good. That is religious life at bridging social capital. So those are a couple of general comments. Let me just make a couple of them like caveats or whatever. Um, the key here, it seems to be, is that religion must be what scholars call intrinsic versus extrinsic. And it basically means you do it because it's important to you, not because it's important to somebody else or for other reasons besides it's like it's value to you. And I I would also say that when you get that intrinsic versus extrinsic, there seems to be a fork in the road. And so you might find, it seems to me, you find a higher correlation with positive outcomes if it is intrinsic uh, religious life. Um, So overall, those would be the the positives. But also, you know, we'll we'll talk about some of the mixed bag elements. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, go to church, be happy, go to church. Like, I don't want to sort of smuggle in a kind of health and wealth thing here. And uh that's not what I want to say, and it isn't even supported by the data. Uh, and then the final thing, I think, is when we look at what COVID-19 has done, and this is a very broad brush, which I want to uh, you know, unfold, is it seems like COVID-19 has taken away all the best parts of religious life, or many of them, by removing the physical co-presence, the presence together in the room. 
I'm not saying entirely, but that seems to, the things we really need seem to correlate with being in the same room together. So COVID uh, really will affect our conversation a lot, as we've already talked about. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Okay. Greg, I'm very excited for this conversation and each of those uh, little bits there. Let's start with physical health. You, and oh, oh, you wanted to say too, you're not a social scientist, Right. 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 But you yeah. do you your job is you are a professor and you are a fill it in. Yeah. So, I mean, the work that I do is really often to interpret science to people who uh, are religious or not religious. And so I do a lot of work with other people's research. But I want to be clear, I have done some, a bit of social scientific research. This is not out of that. Yeah. You know, like that cart of things. Yeah. I just want to be clear, like uh, there are people who really do this themselves mm-hmm. and do it really well. I appreciate that. Yeah. But for, but for this conversation, I, I would rather have someone like you who is adept at interpreting a variety of research and intuiting how it plays against it itself, as opposed to someone who I did these three studies. Let me tell you about these three studies. We're, we're trying yeah. to cast a wider net than that today. Right. And I think exactly. And I think for me, it comes out of being a pastor for uh, 18 years. I'm still an ordained uh, minister, uh, although now for the past six years, I've been in, in an academic environment. And then the work I do with science for the church in terms of bringing science to churches and saying, here's what it can do for you, it, it being the findings of science. So right. this is one particular aspect on that. And we've actually done a little bit of research in science for the church on this particular element. Like what does religious life do for you positively or, oh, or negatively? Great. Well, let's yeah. we'll link to that article or that page from yeah. from your science for the church website in the show notes. Okay, so let, this health and wealth is a good place to start here. So there's there's kind of a funny catch not not catch twenty two an, an irony here, which is that if you are more religious, you are on balance physically healthier. It it shows some protection inherent protection against disease and overall quality of life. That's not the same as the claims of prosperity, health and wealth gospel. I've covered that before, but it's been a long time. So I'll just do, I'll give you my, my one sentence version of the prosperity gospel is the way I think of it, Greg, is any mathematical formula between you and God where such that your input creates some sort of assured output if you do it right. Mm -hmm. That God is basically, God is a a human goods mathematical equation. So if you have enough faith and you pray to get your cancer healed, then it will be healed. And if it wasn't healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't pray right. But if you do it right, God will give you the desires of your heart. Like if then, right? Right. So that's obviously a bastardization of Christian theology. It's also, it would be a bastardization of these scientific findings if someone were to try and use them. But there is a little bit of that on whole. You are actually physically healthier. So what did you find in this research? Well, and I think one thing that's important for people who don't do a lot of social scientific research, these are statistical distributions. So no one individual right, can exactly. say, if, if I go to church and pray intrinsically or something, yeah. I will be healthier. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. You know? No, 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 no. The world is deeply unfair and right. I say that as a, a Christian who believes in and communes with a, I believe, a God of love yep. who did not create a fair world. It is right. thoroughly unfair. Uh, right. And and yet the world is is knowable 
through science. It is it is law like and regular. And this research is is one of one of many attempts that humans make to discover that world. That right. deeply unfair things, world that God created. <laughs> well, and and the cruelty of the health and wealth gospel is when you reverse it, when you say, okay, somebody's doing badly, yes. and you go backwards and say, well, they must have done something wrong, right? So, Well, and that's where – and that's actually where it goes into kind of some of the spiritual abuse research, which is like yeah. now because I as congregant B in the church, for my own anxiety, I need to believe this health and wealth algorithm – Right. That I've got, because if the algorithm or formula is wrong, then my anxiety is going to go through the roof. And so since congregant A didn't get healed, I must think I must say it was congregant A's fault, because if it wasn't congregant A's fault, that means the system is wrong. And then what the hell am I going to do? Right. And so then I then I spiritually abuse my fellow congregant or I could be the pastor or anybody. right, Right. That does that. I spiritually abuse them and rob them of some aspect of their faith to make myself feel better. Yeah, right? I totally, you've said that before on programs and I, I, you don't know I'm doing this, but I'm like, that is amen to that because I think it really is about control. It's really about managing your own anxiety. Yeah. That's why you place this burden on somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I would also say that by looking at people as a community, you know, as distribution statistically, it's probably more biblical. I, I'm not entirely sure that the mm. Bible focuses on the individual. No, I'm, I just may, let me say this more strongly. Yeah, say I'm it more quite strongly. sure the Bible does not focus on the individual as much as the American uh, individual, you know, individualist movement does. And right. so we're looking at what's good for a community. How does a community flourish? And, and it seems to me as far as like, you know, physical stuff, uh, you know, physical components, it seems like if you, again, are religiously active, it's good for, you know, lower depression and suicide, which of course have a well, suicide, of course, has a high physical correlate. Um, you tend to have lower blood pressure. You tend to sleep better. You tend, of course, not to engage in behaviors that will lead to physical problems like uh, risky sex, uh, excessive drug use, alcohol Binge abuse, drinking, that sort right, of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So all those things correlate with stronger physical health. Now, in the research I was reading, there is some indication that it doesn't necessarily correlate with with weight like there's a there seems to be maybe a high <laughs> that doesn't just go weight with is somehow exempt person. yeah yeah <laughs> a lot of fat people in church myself included um I'll, I'll so, see too many like uh i don't know uh, hot dishes you know whatever. yeah it's Pot all the potlucks out. yeah yeah the potlucks uh, show up in the research no that's yeah. funny yeah uh some stuff that i found too in in my own research so some of this i'm pulling from the literature review toward my dissertation uh, and if you're curious, the, the way I get there is I have to argue in the dissertation why spiritual religious abuse matters. And this is a pretty strong argument is that religion matters and religious abuse robs someone to some degree of their ability to practice their religion. And so that's kind of the that's the logical argument. And so that led me to do a bunch of reading around. Well, is religion good? Sh- should we rob people of their ability to do religion? And I concluded, no, we should not because yeah. it is quite good. In many ways. And so I've got here that it's associated with overall quality of life and inherent protection against disease. I believe that was a a literature review article. And then uh, this is a sentence of mine pulling from three or four different studies. Positive religious coping, which we'll we'll talk about 
are we going to talk about positive and negative religious coping? Did that come up in your stuff? Uh, it, it did not actually, but I, I'd be happy if you want to yeah. talk about it. I, I, I can pontificate off what you say. How about that? Okay. So <laughs> I'll, I'll read the, the sentence. Positive religious coping and meaning making can contribute to a decrease in depressive symptoms and increase in self-esteem and higher life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So I'm not fresh – on the distinction between positive and negative religious coping. But it's something like this, like positive religious coping would be like, so there was a study where they interviewed people after Katrina and they would say, some of these Louisiana residents would say, you know, I saw this as an act of God in that it brought families together and it showed us what's important in life. So that's an, that's an example of positive religious coping. Mm -hmm. And actually I wanted to bring this up with you because that's a really tricky one for me in one sense, because I don't believe that God does things like hurricanes. Like, I don't think that God chooses hurricanes. And I would, I'm kind of uncomfortable with describing it that way. But at the same time, just a few days ago, I think three days ago, we're taping this in February. It's going to come out later. But one of the patrons of the show, Blake Beaver, passed away. He mm-hmm. had cancer, uh, he was 22. Wow. He had can- he'd been battling cancer for at least 3 or 4 years and his uh his prognosis was bad. Um he was not going to survive the cancer, but he actually died of COVID mm. earlier than he would have died from the cancer. Wow. And you know, I found myself thinking in my own theological way about well where does that fit in how I think of God in the world and where I came to was uh, that God does not choose or will these instances of evil, but that something about God is that God is always there with whoever is left, you know, whatever agents are left behind to bring good out of evil, to mm-hmm. bring something good out of suffering. Yeah, And I, yeah. I, I was able to see the ways that he had, he had very significantly contributed to our community life. He was very open about his story. He would ask very raw, serious questions and was super kind and loving uh, and really just sort of wise beyond his years, I'm sure not least because of the amount of suffering that he had gone through as a young person. And so that is not that different than the Katrina person, right? Like I have my own, I wouldn't use their language, but I have my own language for it. That is an example of positive religious coping. Right. I am using my theological framework to make some sense of this, tragedy which it is a tragedy of course right and not i'm not i'm not wishing it away or whatever i'm just i'm i'm processing it yeah yeah i mean i think part of it is you know how do we see god uh ultimately like is god a a beneficent um figure and force in the world i don't mean force and some impersonal thing but but like does god do good things or does god do bad things and we we could definitely talk about the theology of this because this is actually where i i live but i'm actually in this case for this podcast interested in What's the effect, like you said, as far as our coping? And I think you could have a God who is good, who suffers with you, you know, more the process side, the open theist side, and that is comforting. And I think you could also have a positive coping if you said God is doing something and God is in control. I don't even understand it exactly, but I trust my heavenly father. You know, I'm 100% appropriating language I've heard. And there, I mean, just as a pastor, there are things that people go through I don't know how they don't break, honestly, but Mm. because they can say that 
and, and mean it, not just say it, but this is back to intrinsic. Like it's intrinsic to them. There is a God who is here and who's in control at some level. I don't get how, boy, that can give you an ability to get through a lot of things that are very difficult, you know? Yeah, and, that's no, that's good. As opposed to saying God is punishing me that, that as far that's as negative religious psychologist. Yeah. yeah, right. Then, then you're off on, on, a, on a very destructive path. Right. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of one of those things. I think it's come up before since the episode about a year ago on the hell anxiety scale with Steven mm-hmm. and Joseph, mm-hmm. where they're like, you know, basically nobody thinks they're going to an eternal hell. Yeah. It's like an impossibility for someone to hold. But there are a very small number of people who do that and their lives suck. Right. Like that they really think I am the reprobate and I can't do anything about it. That that's like the worst way to live. I mean, there's a story I've heard of a a, a friend's mother who was dying. And as she was dying, she was struggling with God about going to hell. Like, I mean, that was so present for her. And I don't know exactly that. I mean, that, that seems to be a tortured kind of mind, right? right. As you die, you're not confident of a loving God, you know, to receive you. Oh, that's dark. But yeah, so positive religious coping does not depend on a certain kind of theology, right? Like you can – most people are not open and relational theists like myself who believe that God is in time co-suffering with Blake, with his family and friends. Uh, And yet they can still find ways to positively religious cope. Negative religious coping would be that, yeah, that fear of reprisal from God or that anxiety or, for instance, religious scrupulosity – kind of a religious OCD that's negative religious coping. Well, I'm going to solve this by like doubling my prayer beads or, you know, like right, I'm going right. to, I'm going to double down and make sure that God is happy with me. That would be negative religious coping. I'm sure I'm right. missing. Somebody will email me something about if you know a better distinction between positive and religious negative coping, email me and I'll include it in the introduction or I'll include it in a future episode as a correction at the top. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, there's that great story from Luther. I'm teaching Luther, Martin Luther right now. And he was training to be a lawyer and he had um, a tragic accident. And he, he said, if, if St. Anne, he prayed to St. Anne, if you save me, I will give myself to be a monk. You know, that's classic bargaining, right? And bargaining, that kind yep. of scrupulosity. And then Luther had this, as you know, probably this incredibly scrupulous conscience went to, he went to confession so many times his confessor said, Hey, can you just get out of here? You know what I mean? Essentially like you were doing this way too many times. And then when Luther came to the tower experience that he recounts where he, he realized the righteousness, righteousness of God was God working in him to make him righteous, not uh, an external demand mm-hmm. out there, but something that was internalized as God's work in his life. There was just this freedom that came out. And suddenly the the coping he was doing that had to do with fulfilling more confessions, being a monk, right. was completely off the table. And there was this God that was actively involved in his life. It to me is one of those signs of that's what brings freedom. That's what brings, you know, mental and physical health. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great distinction. I, I love it. Okay, let's move on to, uh, so that was physical health. And now we're going to talk about mental health, or uh, sorry, mental resilience and happiness. So this is, yeah, we're moving a, a bit away from the body as a whole to the mind or the, the brain uh, and mind as a part of the body. So what did you find here? Well, I, I think this is where uh, the data seem to be quite strong. You know, that, again, if there's this uh, positive 
intrinsic religiosity, there's a higher correlation with happiness and well-being and contentment. And I think you have all these elements that then connect you more strongly with people around you. So you have the ability to, sorry, the correlation with tends to have stronger marriages. You tend to have a better attitude toward life around you. And you tend to be, this is directly related to be pro-social at the same time. So you tend to want to give to others. I mean, one of the people that I find really helpful on this is Pamela Epstein-King. You might know her from Fuller. I'm not sure when you're hanging out with your your, your people there. I, do. I uh, think Jan. I actually briefly met her, but she wasn't a part of the seminar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she said this, did this research with Fetzer Institute that if a person's spiritual, they're more likely to value community and civic behaviors and that they can make a difference. So that's, this is where this is a combined thing. Yes, you're I'm moving into the social part, but it actually also means that we feel better about ourselves, you know? Um, and I, I would hate to do things social pro socially because they make us feel better, but there is really a recursive thing here. It's hard to remove one from the other. Like totally you, you, you get better. You find yourself more hopeful. You find yourself, you know, overall happier and, you also then find yourself caring for others. Let, let's bring in uh, Jesus and other wisdom traditions here for this point a little bit. So Jesus says, you, you must lose your life in order to gain it. And Joseph Campbell, the, what would you call him? I don't know, the comparative mythicist, yeah, something like that, yeah. uh, who, who wrote The Hero's Journey. And I, I'm not I'm not a Campbellian in terms of, I don't know, I, I'm not particularly convinced by a lot of his kind of higher minded arguments about the world's religions and all of that stuff. Um, I think he kind of in that perennial philosophy, you know, this is what all of them are actually about, which I think is a kind of a colonialism, but right. I think that he's right in, I mean, I think he's clearly right in that he sees certain motifs expressed all over the place. And so he calls the crucifixion resurrection, the lose your life to gain it is we find this all over the world in religions and in local mythology and local, you know, basically pagan religion. And what I want to say about that is like, yeah, it's just like a truth. It is a yeah. truth of human experience yeah. that actually yeah. the best things involve self-abdication and giving back into something bigger than yourself. Right. Right. And I think – I just, I'm just going to put a, another or in there. I think it's absolutely true from other re religious traditions. Of course, Buddhism has a strong compassion to its work. Um, and this idea right. that that extends not only to other human beings, but all sentient beings. Um, right. And, you know, I, I think this connection with people around us uh, and losing our life is found in stoicism and, and like many other traditions. And here's where I would push the evolution, evolutionary history of human beings. Like one of the things that makes Homo sapiens so able to flourish is that we have learned how to give of ourselves for the sake of the group. And this was David Sloan Wilson's uh, major point in his books on religion and evolution that you, his, his thought experiment is you take two groups on an island. You, you take one that is like Lord of the Flies, right? Everybody out for himself or herself. Uh, complete selfishness. You take the other group that learns how to collaborate, to cooperate, to uh, to put your own needs down for the sake of the greater community. Like which island is just going to last longer? And 
you just play that out over evolutionary time. Yeah, you do that do that one million times in right. all these different places, right? Right, exactly. And so we have within us through evolution the ability to be pro-social, not the, even the ability, but the some level of propensity. I think there's also yeah. another propensity other ways, but that's the way I would really see, you know, those wisdom traditions coming together with the evolutionary science. And I don't want to say that evolution creates everything that's true in the gospels, but I will say that it provides seedbed. That is the evolutionary history for things that are in the gospels, like giving your life away, you know, and being part of something right. bigger. Well, evolution creates the canvas on can't, that's the wrong. I was just going to mix metaphors in a very unhelpful <laughs> way. Uh, it, it creates the world into which Jesus is born and is yeah. then commenting on, right? So yeah. it gives the raw material for the human world that Jesus then speaks into and speaks about. Of course, right. also his first century Jewish context is, is some additional, uh, you know, seedbed or, or original material to work with for Jesus. Yeah. Well, I mean, and here's a funny thing. I, I agree with what you're saying. And here's a funny thing. This is almost like apologetics. And I'm not against apologetics, but in a way, it's a reason that Christianity is attractive at a certain level. Like, mm. Well, and I think other wisdom traditions as well. Well, I'll just yeah. stick with Christianity because that's where I'm primarily hanging out in this podcast, at least for the moment. And to say that, you know, if you follow what what God puts out and you read in the in the scripture, you're going to be overall a, a better person. Now, again, it's in the aggregate or there'll be better people that come out of it. There's mm-hmm. lots of uh, qualifications I'd want to make. But I think it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning. We are not really designed to be alone. There's this really profound book uh, I, I read in my class uh, and I led my classes in called The Real American Dream. And basically, it's this study of the United States, how the Puritans focused on God. That was their center. God is understood through the Puritan tradition. And then that was sort of the 18th century. 19th century, you have a focus on country. You know, the whole sense of the countries going through this trauma of the Civil War. And Lincoln exemplifies us coming together as a country. And then you get to the third stage, which is the 20th century. The book was written in the late 1990s. And self is the obsession of our country. And uh, yep. the author, Del Banco, he's not a Christian, but he, as far as I can tell, but he identifies that's not a very good way to go. Like, we're just going to fall apart um, yeah. if we're all about ourselves. And uh, again, I think another way of talking about this actively religious life that connects us with other people has positive outcomes for ourselves. And we can even see in society that our society doesn't do very well if we start only focusing on ourselves. But the religious life, as I read it, uh, the Christian life is really about moving out and focusing on the people uh, around us, you know, and that, that to me is a really fascinating correlation of health and religiosity. 100%. I'll give you one of the items that I have here too un- under this heading of mental resilience and happiness. And it is it is kind of back to what we were talking about with uh, positive religious coping, but it, it's meaning making. So mm-hmm. uh, we didn't – I could have brought this in then when I was talking about the Katrina example uh, mm-hmm. or talking about my example with Blake of like meaning making in the literature as I understand it has a particular definition that's a little bit more specific than what we might think. Oh, anything that brings meaning to your life. It's actually, from what I've read, it tends to be after a bad event, uh, after some kind of suffering, 
How does that fit into your story that you have been living thus far? How does it fit into your picture of yourself, where you've been and where you're going? And meaning making is the absorption of negative events into that broader story. And so for the Katrina victims, for instance, it's like, yes, we had this suffering, but it reminded us what's important. Community, family, not our physical goods, but rather, did we survive? Are we healthy personally? You know, can we keep living? Can we help our neighbors out as they literally climb out of the rubble, literally and figuratively? And that that's meaning making. And right. so there is research to show that positive religious and spiritual coping not only gives you spiritual support from God social support from your fellow congregants or whatever, but also language for and a and a structure for this kind of meaning making when negative events do happen to you that then leads to resilience and well-being after the fact. So th- this is a little bit of what we say. I think, you know, Richard Rohr talks about how there there are two ways. I think it's Rohr. There are two things that tend to change people's minds when they have kind of intractable thought patterns, and that is great joy or great suffering. Mm. And this is maybe – this is one way of thinking about what's the mechanism by which great suffering changes you into a better person, which I seem to see over and over again. Not all the time. It can make some people bitter and miserable. But I think about like a Stephen Colbert and uh, losing his child – at some point and just going through inte- or losing a bunch of his losing a bunch of his siblings and one mm-hmm. of his parents mm-hmm. as a kid. And just like if he did eventually make meaning out of that in his Catholic context and it promoted resilience in him and well-being. Right. right. So, right. again, all these things are kind of connected. The physical right. health, mental right. health, resilience, happiness. They're they're not really inextricable from from each other. Right. Exactly. And I would, there's two points just to come off of that for me. There was this Pew study that was done um, in 2019 called Religion's Relationship to Happiness, Civic Engagement, and Health Around the World, and basically found a positive connection. And uh, they, one of the things they noted is they weren't exactly sure why there's links between like participation in civic engagement around you and religious life. They said, I can quote this, while the data presented in this report indicate that there are links between religious activity and certain measures of well-being, the numbers do not prove that going to religious services is directly responsible for improving people's lives. Rather, it could be that certain kinds of people tend to be active in multiple spheres. So it's also like the side of, are we talking about people who would be naturally active anywhere, anyway? But there seems to be uh, a correlation that has been demonstrated between these two things, between being active in life around you and having religious, you know, like authenticity, you might say. Well, correlation is never causation, but the meaning making literature, I think, is goes some way to filling in those gaps by saying it gives you the language and the structure by which to like the the Katrina example I keep going back to. I think God did this in that God reminded us of what's important. So now, uh, again, it could be that that person was the kind of person that would have made meaning out of Katrina, whether or not he or she was in a church, but they sure seem to use this Christian language and use like, that's a very true sort of Christian idea that your stuff is not what's important, 
but your relationships and love for your neighbor are what's important. That's right out of Jesus. So, yeah, you can't always show that, but like that's a pretty good piece of evidence that it has some causal property, if only causal in the sense that it provides the framework and the language for you to make that move. Right. That's a strong piece of evidence. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I would say that it also gives in the meaning making part, that was the the second thing I was thinking is the theodicy question, you know, what, what does God want to do is doing in light of all the evil in the world. I mean, there's a lot of ways Mm -hmm. to state it, but here's the thing I think is the most Christ centered Christian theodicy is God came to earth in Jesus Christ and suffered for us and his suffering demonstrates that we are to give ourselves to other people. I mean, there's other parts to theodicy, but that now our call is to follow that way, to be willing to suffer with others and to serve others. And so there's a meaning making that are the, the great story that we have of who is this God that we worship, who comes in Christ, who gives us an indication of how we care for people who are suffering that gives us meaning then to go out and care for others who are suffering. And that then is demonstrated to be actually positive for us. Like to show compassion is a positive thing. So there's another element here too, about resilience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I recognize that a lot of listeners of this show have been traumatized in church settings. I would say it's, it's probably one of the number one reasons if you could accurately figure it out, that people even like this show, (laughs) that they relate (laughs) to it, is that they've had some negative experiences in church. As we are recording this, my survey is still live. I have not looked through all the data, but a a brief look at some early data is like, yeah, people have experienced a lot of these bad things. Right. And so, first of all, there's a need, if you have experienced trauma, to work through that trauma. And that is a logically prior need to jumping back into a community, especially if it was quite serious trauma. Right. And so I think for listeners of this show, there is a statistically higher percentage of people who are like, yeah, this is all great, Dan and Greg, but like I I was traumatized and like, I don't want to be there. Like it, it's hard to be there, but here's a catch 22. Oh, Oh, listener church is a really great place to heal from trauma. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so here's Thema Bryant-Davis, who I mentioned in the introduction that we had. Positive religious coping and spirituality have been associated with decreased psychological distress, a finding established with all of these separate studies for each of these things. Survivors of child abuse, sexual violence, mm-hmm. intimate partner violence, community violence, and war. Research in this area covers the lifespan from childhood to later adulthood and encompasses both domestic and international studies. So this is robust research across topics, populations, and ages. So my hope for someone – this is why my hope for someone who has been abused in the church in some way or other can eventually find another religious community that is healthy – because it will, on the on the whole, statistically, help them deal with the abuse from the previous religious community. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, but of course yeah. that, and I, I always say that's the pernicious thing about spiritual abuse is that it makes that harder for you to do because yeah. you associate religious groups with each other. Of course, we all do. Churches right. remind us of other churches, right. and so 
that's a that's a real roadblock to be worked through. And, and for some people, I'm sure it's it's a, ultimately impossible, depending on how bad it's been. But that's some of the motivation for that around that stuff for me. Well, I think you're on to. I mean, I think you're on to something a lot with this, and I, I know that it resonates with people. And it is why people are moving to the spiritual but not religious side, you know, of the ledger, right. which I completely understand. And well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say completely. Like I understand everybody's particular story, but I get it. Like I don't not get it. And the fact that I was a pastor only makes me more aware of how flawed the church is and how flawed many pastors are. So I think that's really, really critical. And as I said earlier. When I talk about this, the positive religiosity or, or, or active religion, I'm really talking about what correlates with what people I think are drawing through spirituality with the, at least one big exception, which is it isn't an individual thing. And I know spirituality is not per se individual, but it can be that. It can be yet one more way of going back to the individual thing. And well, actually, in that seminar where we first got to know one another at the American Academy of Religion about a little over a year ago, there's a lot of discussion about these conservative churches that abuse and the trauma that that causes. And, you know, of course, a person's going to want to remove themselves from a community like that. I mean, it makes right. a ton of sense to me. And yet to like, like you said, you got to go to another community because being decommunitized, whatever that word would be, is just not a good solution for recovery from trauma, unfortunately. As far as yeah. I read, you're the psychologist. I'm not. I'm not but- a psychologist, but <laughs> that is also my understanding of the literature to the extent that I understand it. Yeah. Let's yeah, move- can I say one more thing? I yeah, just wanted please, to add one yeah. other point because I know we're going to pepper in some of the problems with religion and yes. you're doing that already. I would also say there are, of course, religious communities, and I'll stick with Christian communities, that because of their teachings can abuse, right? They will, by the nature of the way they're structured, they will not allow you to have a recovery from a trauma. So, uh, you know, if if you were um, getting a divorce, and I've heard this story so many times, and you're a woman whose husband was abusive, and you say, I left, and the pastor says to you, you should never leave, right? That The Bible says, don't leave with the exception of adultery, right? That will be abusive. Like, there, there's just right. no way around those yep. kind of, uh, that kind of community is going to be an abusive community and won't cause these positive correlations we're talking about in terms of health. Oh, of, of course, right? And yeah. And there's an interesting question, and it's one of the things I'm trying to quantify, is like, how many communities are like that. Like I would love to see if we could figure out a way of giving a score to a church community in a validated way. And then we could redo some of these studies and separate out the healthier from the less healthy communities. I bet you see the numbers go even higher and then you see no benefit over here or less benefit over here. That'd be really interesting to tease out. That's like a, maybe an area of future research. If and that can, actually might be good for pastors to read that kind of thing. Right. In other words, those people who are designing communities and, and creating and, you know, recalibrating yeah. them, however you wanted to call it, to know what actually relates to positive health. Yeah. You know, I understand that you also want to be biblically grounded and theologically connected, but there's also that part, like what's going to be good. I, if I can tell you one quick little story, yeah. um, we had a, a social scientist, a psychologist, who came to our church in Chico, California, and um, our head of staff, the main pa- the main preaching pastor, Steve, 
love to talk about the grace of God. Like that was his theme. If you, you, you would, it would be hard not to have left, to have left our church at any, after even in one Sunday and not heard the grace of God, the acceptance and radical love of God. And as far as the conversations with this particular psychologist indicated, he wasn't always so sure about the particular Christian doctrines exactly. Hmm. Wasn't so sure about the, let's say, the deity of Jesus or whatever. Yeah, virgin birth, uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. You, yeah. you go down the line on those ones, resur- uh, you know, the bodily resurrection. But he said, you know, what you're doing is you are talking, you're giving positive psychological input into people's lives. Hmm. You're giving them hope, meaning making, all those things. And I love it for that reason. That's the positive thing uh, I'm hearing from the church services. And I think it relates to his sensitivity to what the messaging does for our psychology and for our health. And obviously, to me, that is the center of the gospel. The center of the gospel is that God loves us. Um, So it doesn't feel like it's at all twisting something to find that as a good message. But it was interesting. He came really from the social, scientific, and psychological side and said, this is what I think we all need to hear. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. Like, the alternative would be that the Katrina victim would go, well, I guess the world is – universe is meaningless and cruel, and we got the bad end of the stick. Like, right. I would not prefer that person have that – you know, if I were their therapist and they were my client, right. I would not prefer – that they leave a session with me going, yeah, I guess it's just randomness and uh, I got screwed. Uh, You know, like that's not, that will not make a better life for them as a client. Now you could get into other arguments about, and we are going to talk about, of course, we're going to get to some of the uh, social downsides of religion. And there are some instances where churches act in the world in a way that decreases outcomes for people outside of their boundaries, especially. And so you do have to balance these things on the whole, but just thinking, you know, like I want resilient clients, like I want resilience for my clients. And so I'm probably going to be more open than a conservative Christian to like other ways they might have resilience that aren't biblical or something like that. But that does not change my appraisal of these as beneficial for my client's life. Right. Uh, And then therefore their community and their children. So if that, Katrina survivor has kids and he or she either goes the nihilism route or the, this shows me what's important in my life. Cause I know what God cares about route. How's that going to affect their children? You think nihilists make good parents? I'll fight you on that one. <laughs> right. I don't think that that's true. Right, you know? Right. So it, it, again, none of it is, none of it is completely separable. The individual from the community, the physical from the mental, it all swirls around in one stream. Right. Right, and that makes it so difficult to 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 separate them, uh, even even when we talk about it, because we don't want to see these as as disconnected. It, which is, I'm just, I guess, I'm on this anti-American individualism theme. That's why the idea of like you can just you be you, right? Or it's all about me. That just doesn't even work. Like that just isn't even life. You know what I mean? Like at some level. So, well, that's a perfect bridge into the next topic, which is pro-social behavior. So first of all, can you define pro-social behavior and then tell us what you found? Well, I mean, uh, this would be a non-technical definition. So just a, it's just that you behave in a way that's good for the social group around you and not primarily for yourself as an individual. And so, you know, pro-social behavior includes things like empathy and volunteerism 
and signs of compassion. Uh, giving money is a pro-social behavior, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's how I would define it again, very, a little bit loosely, if you, that's okay. Um, I find sure. that looser definitions work better for podcasts. If that's yeah, right. yeah. Um, well, actually then, yeah. since you just helped me out with that, the, the two items I have underneath pro-social behavior are yeah. sort of in the gray area between individual and mm-hmm. social behavior. So I'm actually yeah. going to, I'm going to run through those and then we'll go to proper. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, yeah. That will help logically. So I've got a couple things here. Religiosity and spirituality both are associated in children and adolescents with better social support, better role identity. So that's how they see themselves within the functioning of the group. Positive religious coping we've talked about and sanctions against risky behaviors. And if you know anything about teenagers, you know that peer groups are massively influential on each other, right? Right, So you do and believe and listen to the music that and dress like and whatever and talk like your peer group. So if your peer group is engaging in risky sexual behaviors or drug behaviors or whatever, then you are more likely to do that. And if you're not, then they're not, you know, and you, you, you influence each other. So that's why it's kind of, again, it's that gray area between uh, personal and social. And then the other one is that more religious adolescents report lower rates of misbehavior at school, higher levels of hope, love, purpose, self-esteem, and motivation. So yeah. again, my, my connection here between the individual and the group is that is that peer group, that social group, especially at this age when that's right. so important. So yeah, I just wanted to get those in there before we go to full full yeah. on social. But anything you want to say about like more about teenagers and adolescents there? I would first make a disclaimer. I don't really have a specialization in teenagers and adolescents. My but you were main, a pastor for a long time. You had, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mainly was with late adolescents and 20-somethings. Mm-hmm. But I did, of course, have, right, you don't mean I know this, but my daughters now are in their 20s. So, of course, I've parented to mm. uh, young women in yeah. their adolescent years. And I guess I would say, I, uh, to quote something I've, I've said to other people, like everything is junior high. You know what I mean? Like, Whatever happened in junior high is really your life. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you want to, by the way, if you want to be a comedian, just channel junior high, and that's all you need to do. Yeah. You can be really famous if you're funny with it, because there's everything on your sleeve, right? Like, like are you t- what you talk about? You know, what shoes you wore, what sport you did, or who was the the cool guy that for men that influenced everybody? Or, yeah. You know, what were the what was the music that everybody listened to? And you know, that that continues so much to our own day. Uh, I believe that we have, oh, no, you love Jonathan Haidt. I've heard you say this. Love Jonathan Haidt, yeah. Yeah, he's like such an influence on me. And, you know, he would say that that's that just continues. Like, just as one example of many, we don't really argue a point in, in Haidt's idea to prove one another wrong. We argue a point to show that we're in a group that cares for us because belonging right. means so much to us. You know, like, now Haidt doesn't, say that arguing doesn't make any difference at all. He's just saying primarily we're, we're showing right. that we're in this group. And I think that's just like what you're saying with, with the group identity of an adolescent. You know, they are even more obvious about that to us. But we're all yeah. obvious about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, junior high is like the, is the crucible, both that, that sort of forms those patterns in us and also looking back to it is like the decoder ring for our adult behavior as well. Mm-hmm. That right. what we're doing right. in junior high is just, it's just more obvious that we're doing it when we're 14, right. 13, right. but we're still doing it now. I'm doing it at 37. Right. Uh, totally. I'm figuring out which, you know, I'm figuring out which 
authors and thinkers and podcasters and thought leaders I want me I want myself to be associated with. I will phrase things the way that they phrase things. Right. I'm I am I'm signaling the whatever elite group I think I belong in, <laughs> whether or not that's true. And uh, we we just do it all the time. We we just right. do it all the time. Yeah, we do. It's right. the social yep. it's the social animal part of us. Yeah. So yeah. again, that's a nice bridge into properly. Let's let's talk about this pro social behavior in the in the more pure sense that you were going to get to. Right. Well, I think one of the things that uh, has been an eye opener for me is the is how pro sociality is related to evolution. Mm. So that'd be one way I would I would get into it. And I've already mentioned some of this, but. You know, we've all heard about survival of the fittest and nature red with tooth and claw and, and competition and evolution. But there has been a shift, according to the scientists I've talked to in the literature I read, in the past, past 20 or 30 years to seeing the nature of cooperation and prosociality as right. part of our evolutionary history. I've already done a little bit with that, so I don't want to, like, you know, repeat myself. But I think that really helps me understand why we as, a, as human beings need prosocial behavior because it's actually part of who we are. I'm tempted to get into our past president and antisocial behavior, but oh, I think yeah. I will take a, take, take a couple of minutes. That's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing about Trump that was so evident to me, and I know I'm not going to get much pushback from you on this is he just was not a pro-social person. You know, right. um, he appeared to have tendencies, which are narcissistic, which by nature are antisocial. Uh, right. Everything's about, do you look at me? I don't exist unless I have eyeballs on me. And, you know, people follow my Twitter feed and all that sort of thing. And, you know, the whole thing about the election stolen. Well, the, the fact that it was it wasn't stolen, it was you were losing. And so now you're going to see how many people you can get to rig the system for you, which is like the biggest antisocial behavior possible, the less, the least pro-social you can have. And what's fascinating is you now see somebody like a Mitch McConnell who recognizes what that gamble they made with this president and not yeah. restraining him means for society and society for him is particularly the society of Republicans. It's of the Republican party. It just destroys, you know, a community. And, what we what we need as a community is we need to have people who go outside of the norms of prosociality to be restrained and to be limited. And I think in the United States in the last two months that held up, but boy, it was it pushed to the brink and it may get pushed again. Right. So it's all a way of saying, I think Trump is the, I, for, I forget how you put it in a recent podcast. Like he's the most extreme example of one of the most powerful positions, perhaps the most powerful position in the world of what it looks like to be antisocial to yeah. have at least non-pro-social behavior. I say that he's like one of the clearest morality lessons in human history or something. That's right. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like that you can teach your kids. I, I yeah. just made a note to myself for something to look into in the future, and that is narcissism in a pastor or a leader as, is that inherently antisocial? D does that itself neutralize some of the pro-social benefits of a religious group? Or is it more complicated? Do humans, by being so social naturally, do we figure out a way to still be pro-social and congregate around an unhealthy leader? Like, yeah. so did Mark yeah. Driscoll, for right. instance, did he neuter the pro-social aspects that would have been there at Mars Hill? I don't, I'm not sure that's true because so many of my friends had such good social experiences there and are still right. close with those people. So do we find a way around narcissistic pastors, 
right. and and you know what I mean? Like that's a really interesting yeah. future. Oh, I question. love that. Yeah. I mean, I think Jesus really spoke clearly to this, and he said, you know, the leadership you see of in his time was leadership over somebody, right? Which yeah. is that leadership. I I have something. I have a power. I give you something. You you need to give me something back, right? That's classic feudalism. It's it's again what Trump did, like yeah. when Jeff Sessions when he gave him the position of attorney general and Jeff Sessions starts this, you know, criminal investigation into Russia. He's like uh, Russian interference in the election. He's like, I hired you. You owe me something now. How how can you be independent at some right, level? Right. But Jesus said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm preaching now, but like, you know, you, you, the way to do it is to come under and to, and yeah. to serve, right. To, to um, di- diaconate. That's the Greek word, uh, diakonia, like to serve, to come alongside. Right. And that's a totally different way of leading. Um, it's a pro-social leading. I think a leader can also be anti-social uh, uh, and not pro-social. Right. And I think J- Jesus was talking about leaders that are pro-social. Having said that, I love your question because what's actually troubling is to watch how people can be drawn in by narcissistic leaders. And, yeah. and that's just a question we'll leave out there. Um, well, I just, I can't help but go a little bit. So we watched The yeah. Vow on HBO, which is about the Nixium cult which oh, is a right. yeah, yeah. very recent modern day cult and at a certain point that guy Keith Ranieri's narcissism really did break down all the pro-social stuff and you have members of the cult turning on each other you know right. jockeying for position to be closest to Keith so it seems like there's definitely a way in which inner circles at least the pro-sociality is radically disrupted by competition over the resource of the leader but right. a place like mars hill with 10 campuses and let, let's call it 50,000 people at, at one point maybe 20,000 people plus listeners and stuff uh maybe you get further out from the center of power and you can still have pro-sociality although i have so many stories of the kind of quote accountability structures within those groups ending up being really antisocial for anybody with questions or doubts or that doesn't right. fit the mold of the provision or provision husband and helper wife, you know, all the kind of all the bullshit that Driscoll was into. So interesting, but we'll here. Can let's add one more uh, thing to that? Yes. Add one this more. Thing. Great, we've got a great excursus going. I hope that yeah. people are listening like it as well, but uh, yeah, we'll this see. Whole thing with Carl Lentz, the Hillsong pastor, yeah, the Hillsong guy. Bieber's former pastor. Uh, I've just been fascinated by that um, I, because I actually personally really love Hillsong music. I mm. do not like Jesus culture. I love Hillsong. If, okay. so the whole, the whole I don't even know the distinction. Yeah, but yeah. I'm sure and some I know listeners do. Not yeah. your, your vibe. Um, yeah. I also like John Coltrane. I, I can like very progressive stuff. So I, I don't judge you for liking uh, <laughs> worship music. I don't judge you. But anyway, the point being, um, and I went to Hillsong New York one time when I was visiting my daughter uh, who went to Columbia and I had a profound experience of God there. It was really amazing. I did not have an experience of God with Carl Lentz's sermon for whatever that's worth. But yeah. what was interesting about these stories that are coming out is, you know, he was basically like limoed in. He was, had his entourage. He'd walk into preach and then he'd be limoed out or whatever. Yeah. Like he'd have his, his posse with him. You know, mm-hmm. he never, according to the articles like in Vanity Fair, had a deep connection with his congregation. Right. You know? And, that can create a narcissism. I'm not saying mm. I don't know enough to make a decision. There's probably some chicken egg there as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, you know what they do in the Presbyterian Church USA? I'll just give one shout out to my denomination. I love – this is my favorite thing about Presbyterianism. Go. <laughs> is, the internal structures. 
internal structures and mm-hmm. exactly. But the other part is they recognize that a lot of us who go into being a minister of the warden sacrament, that was the language we used for a long time, the pastor. Mm. Yeah. That we do this because we had broken pasts and we're trying to heal people. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about this. Yeah, there's a high correlation with brokenness in, in terms of people's past and going into the pastoral profession. Oh, wow. So what the PCUSA and other denominations has found is, therefore, you have to go deeper into your own psychology mm-hmm. to say, why are you caring for somebody? Because to have a good leadership, uh, to have good leadership, meaning good in the sense of bringing this kind of positive social life, pro-social life, psychology, et cetera, you have to come to terms with your own stuff. So yeah. the whole process of care when it's done well, which is a process of how you discern your call, the process particularly of clinical pastoral education, which I did, is to see how do you deal with trauma? It's, it's Yes, you are helping other people, but you're also like in that period, you're doing an internship. You're saying, what does this bring out for me? So that when you tell me this uh, friend, I think it was Blake. I may not have got yeah, his name. Blake, right. 20, yeah. 22 and died. Mm-hmm. What does that bring up for me? Well, it brings up for me, my 29 year old friend, uh, sorry, when I was 29, my friend who died of AIDS, you know, who mm. was this amazing gift, this gospel singer. Right. And like, I, I have to recognize that so that when I'm, if I'm caring for you as a parishioner, I don't immediately go to my friend, Will, who died. Like that's a great experience, mm-hmm. but I need to recognize that's a trauma I have that I can't lop onto you because that may not be your experience. And I can't be going around trying to make up for the fact that uh, for most of my life, my parents did not have a religious commitment, a commitment to Christ. And so I can't go to everybody who's my parents' agent and and try to make up for that and keep, you know, make them, you know, become more Christ centered or something like that. So my whole point being, there's gotta be that healing for the leader and I think our denomination yeah. has a structure which helps for that to identify your own stuff so that you don't bring it to others and so that you can help them to uh, to, to be in full, a, a fully orbed Christian experience, and which includes these uh, characteristics that we're talking about. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that there are yeah. denominations that have that kind of thing. Um, I love that. Well, let's take a short break, and we're going to come back and talk about society. Okay, Good. so we're going to uh, – we're gonna, as much as we can, we're going to move from the individual and, and we're going to actually just talk about broader society and what does the research show there. All right. We'll be right back. All right, Greg. Man, I love talking with you every time. I love that you're a regular guest. This is We're just going to have to make this a thing. I like that. And Dan, usually I do something about how great you are. So uh, in, in the last- Don't. No, don't this time. I try and you always – I try and have Josh edit out like some of them because it's embarrassing. Well, I, you, I will, I, I'm going to just say one more time. I do okay. really regularly listen to your podcast. You're like one of two or three podcasts I continue to listen to like as much as I possibly can. So thanks for that. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So moving towards society. So we're, we're now bridging pro-social behavior and in terms of the effects it has on others and then the broader societal impacts. So what are we seeing here in the literature? I, I mean, I, I, well, I think obviously the pro-social part is good. You want to have people who care for other people, have like civic uh, responsibility because they think it's important to care for the civic life, by which I mean the life around them. That's not mm-hmm. just their own or in their own house. You know, as soon as I say that, I recognize we've had some fairly religiously, how should we say it, overtly religious people who've done some kind of anti-social or anti-civil behavior 
Yes. So we could bracket that and get back into it. But but overall, this is a good thing to have people who are involved in religion. And again, for most people in the United States, that re- those religions will be Christian. You know, I mean, the religion will be Christian, whether it's Catholic. Because we're in the States. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to go back to Putnam because I think he's so good on this, you know, that in his book, Bowling Alone was a couple decades ago now, I think. He found that, you know, the United States was moving away. It was bowling as much as it did in the 50s, but it, they, people weren't bowling in leagues. And that right. was the uh, basis of his book, right? And I think his point was we don't have these social connections. And religious institutions, religious organizations do that really, really well. Of course, there are other places that can happen, but to have those is is good for a society. Yep. Um, it's good for us to know one another. The other side, though, that I mentioned earlier, which – really actually concerns me quite a bit is the lack of bridging social capital, right? So Mm -hmm. that we bridge from our connection, uh, our collection of religious life to another religious life. And I I think I've become more and more uh, sensitized to how this is true within racial divides in our country. So There tends to be a white church. I mean, this this is going to sound so obvious, but we got to say it. And there tends to be, let's say there'll be, there's the black church, the other. And the Asian church for sure. Right. Yeah. And Latino churches. Yes. Right. Yep. But we'll just go with the, you know, the church of, you know, uh, white church and black church. And they are so different. And Mm. I think they are so varied in their expression of what the Christian faith is that it's too bad we're not seeing them come together. And I, I personally, with Science for the Church, we're really working at this in a very practical way, which I could describe. But we need it because 80% of Black Americans are Democrats, right, who right. are involved in the church. 80% of church-going Blacks um, are Democrat. So when we say there's an association between being politically right and you know being a, a committed Christian, that's just obviously racially tinged. Yeah, it, it might even be racist to be honest, right? Yep. So I, I, mean, I say that because you get a person like Ralph Warnock, the first pastor in forty years to go into the Senate, right? It's I, I posted something about him on Twitter, and a friend of mine was like, "Well, you know, basically said, well, how's this guy a Christian?" And I'm, and it, and it was a misunderstanding, at least, of Black Christian religion, you know, uh, African American yeah. spirituality, and. I think that is just a demonstration of the lack of bridging social capital between groups. Right. Just just like getting beyond either our local church group or the the larger sort of sociopolitical group that we identify with as white Christians or black Christians or something like that. Right. That's right. In fact, I, I have a study that I'd like to reference that's that is relevant at this point. And I don't I didn't pull this one up, so I'm doing it from memory, but a very interesting study, and I've I've mentioned it before, but it fits in nicely here. That they they pulled people, they gave them this hypothetical situation where a family had just come into their town and they were in need of assistance. So they were like currently homeless or something like that, you know, transferring jobs and in need of help, you know. Significant help, like thousand, couple thousand bucks, kind of a thing, and they uh, manipulated the variables, right? So, for some of them, the family was also a Christian family uh, that was coming to their church, and then for some of them, it was a Muslim family that had moved in and was not going to their church. And then right. the other manipulation they did was they asked, 
who of these two families do you think your pastor would want you to help? Mm. And then the other group, they said, which of these two families do you think God would want you to help? Mm. And they found a quite significant difference that people thought their pastor would want them to help the Christian family that was going to come to their church, but Mm. that God would rather that they help the Muslim family that was Mm. not going to come to their church. Wow! So there, there does appear to be, this is early evidence that there is a differential sense that American Christians have between what their pastor wants and what God wants. Mm. And what God wants is more universal. It, it is more bridging those groups. Uh, and what the pastor wants is a bit more insular. And, you know, maybe that's a natural consequence of the kind of pro-social intergroup stuff that churches, you know, tend to promote and that that tends to work there. But I thought that was a really interesting finding as it points to maybe separate modules for God and pastor. Maybe you call that spirituality and religion, but I don't think it's quite so simple because God is obviously a part of religion, especially if you're a Christian, right? So it's more like religion as you purely understand it and religion as you practice it. It's more like that than it is religion and spirituality, seems like to me. Yeah, that's great. Wow. I. Uh, the, the other, I don't have anything to add to that except to say that I think there's a there's a lot there. I was also thinking of the work that Robert Jones has done, um, PRRI, I believe, Public the, Religion Research Institute. Yeah, perfect. Yes, former depolarized um, guest Robert Jones. Yep. He, uh, oh my goodness, I don't know if you had him on this podcast. Not on, no, I need to. I haven't had him on your permission yet. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get around to it. He's great. Uh, yeah, um, he was yeah. so great in that. Uh, I, I heard him on uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross talk about mm. his recent research, and you know, just indicating that sadly enough, Christianity has increased race, racism in our country, and there's actually a correlation between being a Christian and being racist. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I, I'll just say this: it would it take more time to actually give you? Uh, proof. Being, I believe being a white Christian. In his research, right? Okay. Not, yeah, that's probably true. I don't think being a black Christian would be increasing racism. I think that's probably true. Yes, yeah. I think that's probably true. Yeah, that, that's that's a good – thank you for that well, clarification. Well, it's, it's important because as it's you're saying, it's – they're so – and I would – I think he would agree with this, but I would posit that one of the, the big causal mechanisms of that is that white Christians have self-selected or been encouraged into and shepherded into this – sociopolitical group of Fox News watching, culturally embattled, you know, persecution complex, white identity politics. Right. That that's that that and there is, you know, actually the recent chat with David Cassidy that aired but just before this, we've done this interview and then also back with Sam Perry around conspiracy theories and, you know, evangelicalism and uh, eschatology and all that stuff. There are decades and decades and decades of rail that have been laid for that train to move that direction, but it really does – it really has only moved that direction among white Christians, mm. it, uh, and you just don't see it otherwise. Yeah, It's amazing that black Christians wouldn't feel that, right? I mean that's – who have actually been the targets of immense racism. This is uh, why the black church is like – the black church is the – are the heroes of America well, since the, you know, since I mean, the that, 50s at least. I, yeah. I, I'm just going to say amen, brother. I mean, it's like, for me, that has been the black church. I've always loved, this is back to music. Um, I, I, I love gospel. I love jazz. I love funk. I love R&B. So 
there, mm-hmm. it's all rooted, uh, much of it is rooted at, deeply in the black church. And so I've had that connection. But in the last year, uh, particularly, I have really drawn on the resources of the black church because it doesn't have this, this in my impression, terrible association of uh, dreadful politics with committed Christian faith. Yeah. And it also has such a connection with social justice. You know, so you have these songs that are as deeply pious as any evangelical, you know, uh, CCM song. Yeah. Um, and then you have this commitment to social justice. Like, it's just this beautiful bridging together. It's such an insane story, too, Greg. It's insane. We brought them here as slaves, forced them to become Christians worried that if they became Christians, they would think that we would free them. So we all agreed that we won't free them just because they become Christian doesn't mean they're free. Then we don't let them into our seminaries. So they have to start their own seminaries and then they bring us the civil rights movement and they speak out against Trump and they forgive Dylan roof the day after he murders their parents and a man, like I know, how like me, I, I, nothing I'm, I'm but tears respect. right now. I, I'm feeling tears. I mean, I, you, it's you, an you, insane story. It is it's such a story of grace. It's Christ. Course, it's I don't want to make. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, I, I always says I don't want to make. Ugh. I don't want to put the burden on on my brothers and sisters who are black that they have to be perfect. But boy, there's a lot of good news that's come out of the black church. Yeah, and continues of to come out of the black church. Incredible. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, where were we? I, I don't know. We got. I lost. I lost that emotion. Got lost. My my brain just. Couple went of different. couple of white men getting teared up over the faithfulness of the black church. That's how it I know, should it was, be. It was, it was. That's good. It's good. And it's Robert yeah. jo- Robert Jones's research. That's where we were. And that yeah. division. I think we were at right. Yeah. And so enough emotion, Greg. Let's get back to the abstract learning. <laughs> that's what we do on a white theology podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I think what um, Jones puts out there and Putnam and, and there are many, many other people is there is this shadow side to religion and mm-hmm. to religiosity that has some very negative effects and the social connection of religion. It's, and this, I'm, I'm not going to say evolution is more powerful religion, but evolution can give us an understanding of why this might be that yeah. we are really designed to work within groups of approximately 150. I understand. So mm-hmm. like, the, the pro-social elements, the social connection really works well in smaller groups, yes. smaller than big mega churches or whatever. Go ahead. Totally. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, one of the one of the ways that I think about both Christ, but also the Hebrew prophets and all the other, uh, you know, so sociologists of religion talk about the axial age, right. uh, which I know oh. you know about, but maybe not all listeners. So correct me if I'm wrong here. Greg, but basically there's this kind of remarkable coming together around 500 BC, but so maybe 800 BC to 200 AD or something. I think there's a sometimes include the Stoics and early Greeks or whatever. So there, this parallel thing that seems to happen in multiple world religions and wisdom traditions where there is a move from the tribe to humanity universal, right? right? Like, it's a universalization of the ethical impulses toward the group, toward beyond the group. And so you see this in you got like Lao Tzu and Confucius and Plato and Aristotle and Isaiah Buddha. and all these people. And, yeah, and, and Buddha. 
the Buddha. Buddha, yeah. Right. And so you see, so for instance, in Isaiah and the other prophets, and then you see this as well in Christ, it's like, hey, we are among other nations. And like, we are an example to those nations. And it matters that we treat them justly. It matters that the sojourners who come into our land get treated with full respect. And then Christ, you know, the Good Samaritan parable, anything where he's kind of pushing the boundaries, you know, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. Like uh, your ethnic identity is not that important. Your, yeah, your smaller group identity is not, it's this universal push towards you know humanity or something like that. I'm obviously not all these leaders would use that kind of Western language, but right, right. that that's a thing you see across the world. And that's, that's how I understand the relation here between what has been baked in evolutionarily, which is by default, a group of about 150. That's where we really kind of hum and, and click and get things going. And then the great leaders of world religions pushing us beyond that to the universal right, and that right. we have that capacity to get right. to the universal and they inspire us that direction. And that is one of the roles of religion. But of course, religion can be insular and can be legalistic and can exclude people beyond our group. Like all the language is there to do either thing with religion. Right. And I think you even see that if you, if you want to take a little bit more of a, you know, um, a textual documentary history of the Old Testament when the first chapters of the Bible have that universalism, right? You have Adam, which is really just the name for the human being. And we can, we can talk about yeah. whether it's also an individual proper name, but there's something universal. He's not a Jew. You know what no, I mean? He's the a beginning human. of the Bible is not Jewish, but it comes out of this axial age as far as what most scholars think is its final editing. Right. And it's the so beginning powerful. of Genesis was not the first part that was written. It's actually right. some of the yeah. latest stuff. Right. But there's something in the putting together of the canon that the Jewish you know, synagogue or whatever you want to say said, this is how it should start, right? We yeah. should start universal because that yeah. is, we've gotten, we, we now, ha- I don't know, but now they would say we now have it, but that was in their consciousness. And anyway, I just find that really powerful. Oh, that's very cool. And that's yeah. a great insight, Dan, because we do have this possibility to think of something bigger than us. It's just a little hard for us to do that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is happening in our, in our world is, of course, Trump was a nationalist, but he wasn't the only nationalist. I mean, he was part of a group of movement toward nationalism. Ongoing, yeah. Yeah, ongoing, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're just getting such a sense of the, the size of the globe. We're just recoiling as a, as yeah. a, as a world and as human yeah. beings. Um, and, and, and I think proper religion, if I can use that term, the, the, the Jesus religion, I'll put it that way, is – universal right you're he's just he's always breaking down boundaries he's always saying okay great you've got you know you've got your circle that you've divide you've worked out with uh, the laws you have especially the boundary markers of circumcision and kosher law and sabbath okay let's blow those out paul said the same thing let's blow it out we got there's no no longer jew or greek you know yep. gentile uh, or slave nor free. It's like, okay, those boundaries are gone. There's something bigger. God is saving all humanity. God is coming. And, and the thing is, it's amazing in John 1 14 is God doesn't just come in Jesus Christ as human. God comes as flesh. So it's like, there's something about like nature, at least sentient nature that's being embodied in the incarnation. I, I think Jesus did become a human being. Don't get me wrong, but there's something about saving all of flesh. So this message we have is a message in, in the Christian faith, in other faiths as well, other traditions, 
of, you know, we can think about the globe. We can think about, and not just think about, but act positively toward it. And I think this is where the evolutionary pressures also show themselves as not directly aligned with the gospel, because there is an evolutionary pressure to take care of my family, to take care of my progeny, to take care of my tribe, because I'll take care of my family, right? And we also have this pressure that, and I mean this in positive ways, that says we got something bigger. We got something bigger we should worry about. And we're fighting between those right now to figure out, can we get to a bigger world? I would say that um, if you were to typologize liberal and conservative churches, liberal churches tend to do much better at that universalism of the gospel, but sometimes don't do so good on the particularity. And so they don't really have a strong marketing edge because of that. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, you're, it's much easier to talk about, is this church going to save my marriage? Is it going to give me a small group? Is it yeah. going to help me have friends, right? Instead well, of, is it going to help me save the planet? And actually, Jim Wellman found in his extensive survey, at least in the Northwest, up where in Oregon and Washington and British Columbia, that those liberal churches did well serving the homeless, but actually conservative churches – evangelical megachurches and stuff had a lot more social programs. Right. So there even, there even seems to be a way in which we can get our heads up our own asses (laughs) in caring, quote unquote, caring for the whole world, but not doing anything about it. Right. Um, This is like, it's, it's kind of nimbyism, right? It's not in my backyard, which is really a plague of social liberals. Uh, you, You see this happening in California all the time. Every time they try to get some, you know, affordable housing, it's near some wealthy people and they won't let it be there, you know, so, oh, I stand up for affordable housing. I want these social services, but not near my kids, not near, not lowering my home value. Right. And so that's a danger of those of us who are on the left is that we can think so highly of our ideals that we actually don't even act on them. Uh, And and so there's a, there's a lot of tension sort of in, in all these directions. I think you know that my wife is a director of our homeless ministry here in Chico called the Jesus Center. And I can just say many, many of the people that give to the Jesus Center, either financially or in terms of service for the homeless, are very conservative Christians, right? Yeah. They're they're motivated by their faith. Oh, yeah. So I think there's just as far as like anecdotally, absolutely true, you know, yeah. and yeah, and we've and we have to find a way. And I think this is the this might be one of the kinds of uh, enduring uh, tasks for us that comes out of this podcast, perhaps I hope for the listeners too, is like, how can we join together? And, and if we care about religious life and you see the benefits, how can we help it be beneficial for the fullness of our country and the fullness of our world? I think that that's a challenge. I think. Having just criticized uh, liberal Christians, let me, let me criticize some conservative Christians here and, and, (laughs) and, and bring up another point in the outline that you sent me, which is, as I would sort of say it, there's a kind of an anti-intellectualism that often accompanies more conservative religion, and this can have real consequences for society. So, for instance, you know, blood transfusions and Jehovah's Witnesses is a is a pretty clear example. A lot of Jehovah's Witnesses die because they have a kind of a bizarre religious belief that blood transfusion is like a soul transfusion of some sort. I don't I don't understand it as well as maybe maybe as you do, but it's a taboo. They have a taboo against it. And, you know, I would I would probably put like a dogmatic insistence on abstinence only sex ed as uh, one of those kind of social uh, bads 
uh, because the data shows that it doesn't work. Kids will still, teenagers will still have sex, and then they'll end up just getting pregnant and having abortions or giving each other diseases. And these are these are fifteen year olds. Like they they're not capable of the kind of moral reasoning that a twenty eight year old with a fully connected prefrontal cortex is. Maybe we should treat them like fifteen year olds and and give them some condoms. I mean, you know, like like uh, d- demanding certain kind of religious rigor from you know unformed brains that can lead to societal problems. You bring up an interesting one here. Uh, that that you sent me about birth control and overpopulation. And this one, you know, we have a handful of Catholic listeners. I'm kind of curious how they'll take this, but I, I'd like to hear you talk about it. Well, I, I know the current Pope has written on this connection. Um, so I, I only say that to say I have not pursued that strand very closely. I mean, okay. he's, in other words, supporting the traditional Catholic position, but also recognizing the problem we have with overpopulation. That so, there is a, yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in, in less, in less Western countries, problems with overpopulation. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just want to. I'm just confessing my ignorance, but I do think that I'm concerned about the negative health out, outcomes for societies and nations with overpopulation. I think. Yeah. I, I don't mean to be go on go full Thomas Malthus here, you know, from the 19th century, but there is a problem of having too many people competing for food. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. we have a severely undernourished world. Now you, we could argue that we have enough food for that, for those people. But at some point there's going to, there is a carrying load of this planet, right? Yeah. Just on the, the, the nature of, of food, but there's all kinds of other things like the creation of all the greenhouse gases. Right. That's an issue. Uh, they, in California, particularly, we have this issue, this urban wildlife interface, right? As we move into forests, we're going to have more and more um, cataclysmic fires, which right. is a sign of overpopulation. Right. As a Christian, I have made a decision to limit the amount of children that I have for the sake of the goodness of the globe. Like, I feel like the be fruitful and multiply command has really been satisfied. Like I, that's fine. We did that. One. <laughs> <laughs> we checked it. Yeah. We're, we're good. We have multiplied. You're yeah. Right. Oh, that's funny. So that's I, funny. So and I actually, I want to be clear that the Catholic reproductive theology is not anti-intellectual. So I, I don't actually mean to lump it in to the other stuff. Like I think Jehovah's witness thing is probably anti-intellectual and, some of this other stuff. And I, there's a few more anti-intellectual effects to talk about on society. But I, I just want to – I do want to be clear about that to interrupt right. you and my, right. myself there. I, I understand that that's based on real theological work and actually some very nuanced understandings of the human person and God and all of that. So I just to – I need to exempt it from the anti-intellectual label because I don't think that that's where it comes from. Right. I, and I, I think it's worth saying, that's good. I appreciate that because the Catholic tradition, I've actually come to respect also a great deal, right? Uh, I me, mean, me too. In the, yes. in the past year, especially. Yes. And, and I think in the notes I sent, it wasn't per se an intellectual thing. It was more, there are doctrines and teachings that get in the way of, of good social health. And one of those, yeah. I think, I think birth control is, is good. Like, I mean, I think it's not an unmitigated good, but it's important for us to uh, limit the amount of population growth we have. It's yeah. oddly enough, there's a certain biographical connection. My dad worked for the company that developed the pill in the sixties. Um, oh, wow. Syntex. So we, so have, you're biased. Yeah, I'm biased. Exactly. <laughs> this is one of the, I got to put that out there. The yeah. pill paid for your schooling, Greg. Okay. <laughs> so of course you love it. Although I would say that I don't know that the pill is the best birth control. So we are getting way oh, off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, fine. That's true. Put a pin in that. 
Yeah. Uh, but here's some. But let's get to some of the intellectual stuff, like we're yeah. seeing around vaccine, anti-vaxing. Right. right. Uh, there, I don't. I haven't seen any data on what the relationship is between religiosity and anti-vax behaviors. I don't know if you've seen any of that. So I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I'm not seeing really d- detailed. I okay. I'm only could do it anecdotally to, to assume that there's something there, but I probably yeah. shouldn't do that. Yeah. But there is, but there is a lot of data that like, you know, mental health services, that kind of thing, uh, especially in a lot of churches is frowned upon. This is something that's showing up in, in my own research around spiritual abuse that like, you know, there, there can be a tendency to over spiritualize everything and then to deny sort of scientific solutions right. uh, or at least possible solutions right. like antidepressants or talk therapy or, you know, whatever. Right. 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 Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's also in terms of COVID, there are just some incredible statements that are made by, by pastors that have no right to make them. Like if mm. I can just pick on John MacArthur, you know, saying, you know, a, uh, COVID's not a problem. Right. It's overinflated. Like, how do you make that statement? I mean, just yeah. on a level of Christian behavior and humility, that is so arrogant. Uh, I, I, it's really hard for me to understand that. Uh, I'm not a MacArthur fan. I've never been a MacArthur fan for lots of other reasons. But, but that is a negative. That's negative. Uh, and a negative approach toward, you know, intellectualism to people or just people who are specialists, right? So this is interesting. This came up in another episode. It was a while ago, and I don't remember what the context was. But I learned about this in my history of psychology course in my program mm-hmm. yeah. that basically 150 years ago or so, don't quote me on that. It was generally believed that knowledge was uniform, that it mm-hmm. was transitive. So yeah. learning uh, really well reading, really <laughs> well reading skills, learning to read really well and maybe getting good at history would translate over to other domains of knowledge. And one of the early kind of psychological, like proto psychological findings was that that's not true. And Uh I wonder if there's something about, there might be something inherently about being a pastor and the way that you are treated by your congregation as an authority on the most important aspects of life and the universe that there might be an inherent human assumption that that trend that that's transitive to other forms of knowledge Mm. so that a John MacArthur, for instance, might have an inflated sense of his ability to parse other things that are not his domain of, of expertise, his domain of expertise, of course, being shitty theology and biblical exegesis and chauvinism, but, uh, and I think some racist colonialism, but he then, he is, he is good at some, he has some skill level at writing long books and doing all this stuff. And he thinks that that translates to other stuff. I wonder if there's something natural about that, that might be about narcissism. Whereas, you know, if people sort of build you up this way, it's natural to assume that you are good at other things or maybe something even more, uh, sort of unrelated to narcissism. It's just an idea. Yeah. I, I, we could talk about pastoral, the profile of pastors, because I think there's a lot of things in the pastoral world that there are a lot of people there that aren't very healthy emotionally. Let's talk about that, because I, I don't, I really know very little about that. And you've already kind of dropped a couple breadcrumbs. So you obviously know a lot <laughs> more here. Can I just go so, back? Yeah, go sure. Back and say one thing, one positive thing about conservative churches. This is why I think that um, it's so great that Francis Collins goes on to focus on the family and talks to Jim Daly about 
yeah. uh, wearing masks. Like yeah. Francis Collins, well, he's one of my heroes. I just, I really think the guy's got it down in so many ways. And what I, what he realizes is, okay, it's enough to, you got to, you got to know the science, all that, but you also got to go and you got to go talk to people. And in so the language that they understand with experts that they trust or whatever influencers, whether I don't know that anybody from focus on the family is an expert on anything, but a lot of people think they are. And right. so if you can get that guy to interview you, then right. you can reach a million people. And talk about why masks right. are just a, a really clear and easy way to help right. reduce the spread, right? So yeah. so there are good examples and it's good, good for Jim Daly to, to have that relationship. They obviously have totally. a relationship, you know what I mean, from what I've seen. So yeah, back to the pastor. I, I, the thing I, that uh, I see in pastors that is probably their Achilles heel, it may be narcissism, but I think it's, what I see more often is control. They're, they tend to be control freaks. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier that I learned that many pastors come from broken families. And so mm. they're trying to, uh, they, they, they're trying to control some other unit of uh, group, you know, instead of a family group that didn't work so well for them. They're trying to con- find a bigger family that they can control as a father. Often it's a, it's a male thing, but I think there are female pastors that show this also. And so I think that can correlate with some of these negative outcomes like I can control this. So I'm going to tell you what's, what is true, even if I don't really know it's true, but I'm going to make you feel good. You know what I mean? Or I'm going to tell you that that's not really important to listen to because it's going to disturb you or listen to my message. I think this is where it becomes the controlling can become self-centered. I want to be in the position to control you. I feel myself when I'm controlling others and giving them comfort. So if I allow for experts to disrupt that, that's a problem. I mean, I think that's where the pastoral problems can, can enter in. And I believe it was your conversation with uh, Dr. Uh, was it Jim Wellman about uh, Bethany church up in Seattle where the pastor who's a leader was like, I'm going to talk to scientists. I'm going to find out what evolution is really about, you know, and then I'm going to change my mind. Incredible. Uh, And just, to plug my own work that I do a lot of my time with scientists for uh, in science and science for the church is we want to do want pastors to talk to scientists, to talk to psychologists who are scientists yep. and learn from them, like to be humble enough, sorry, to exhibit humility that helps people to engage specialists. But I think that's, that's hard for people. I think it's, it's hard to admit, especially pastors, who are people to admit that you are less than the answer man, you know? And I think that's part of the profile that gets in the way of, of saying I'm, I'm wrong or I don't know or whatever. Yeah. It's almost like to tie two things together from our conversation. Let's say you are this kind of prototypical pastor profile where your going into ministry is in some way a response to a, ne- a negative, you know, experience or set of experiences growing up. There is a positive religious coping and a negative religious coping version of that. So there's like the meaning making version and the cycle breaking version where you end up like Richard Dahlstrom at Bethany. I don't know what his background is, but let's just say it was him. And you go, you know, I'm not going to be like my dad was, or I'm not going to be, you know, I'm going to, I want to create something for people that is better than what I had. But then there's the version, there's the negative religious coping, which is like probably more like I'm unaware that I'm reacting to these things. I This goes back to what you were talking about in PCUSA, how pastors are encouraged to do that work, that personal narrative work, 
to know what it is they're responding to. Because if I don't know, then I'm just going to sort of unconsciously act in certain ways, you know, overcompensate. I'm going to make myself okay. And then I'm in this position of power. And this is when I can do so much harm because I, I am the, you know, I like to talk about religion as nuclear fission. Uh, I'm still working on this analogy, but it's like you can either get literally free electricity (laughs) forever, basically at almost no cost, or you can blow up a nuclear power plant Mm -hmm. and, and irradiate everything in a 50 mile radius and kill every living thing. Religion is just powerful. It just is. It's just at the center of us and it can do great harm. It can do great evil. And so if you go that wrong route with that kind of baggage, well, now you've got this powerful thing and people are willingly handing over this power to you because of your position. And then you, you do poorly with it. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. And I, I loved what um, that interview you had when you talked with Jim Wellman about the question, whether is it just that, you know, churches develop, uh, sorry, are are drawn to the kind of unhealthy leaders uh, that that grow big, right? I, I would also reverse that. I think I, I have a lot of concern of what the traditional head of staff position does to a person. In fact, yeah, in my life, I've only I have served as a pastor as an associate, and I was I had the offer at least four times that was really significant to be a head of staff in in what you could call good churches, right? Yeah, they just say they're good places. They would have been good for the career at least. But I actually found myself resisting and ultimately decided, ultimately I had to listen to this. I resisted because of what being a head of staff did to the persons that I saw who were heads of staff so often. It actually created a person that wasn't a very healthy individual often. I'm not saying every head of staff was like that that I know. I'm just saying I was really concerned. And so I think there's a, again, back to this recursive process. I think as much as churches are formed by bad leaders, Sometimes I think bad leaders are formed by the structures the church sets up. And sure. I was concerned that that would do, would do the, those bad things to me. And one of the things it does actually is it actually takes away your ability to relate to people because you have all these asymmetrical relationships. You know so much about so many people that they think they know you, but hmm. they really don't know anything about you because it's inappropriate for them to know something about you at a very deep level. And then you become a shell of yourself very easily. And you become a manip- you become a manager of or all these. Or you play the character of yourself, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think all that's wrapped up into uh, why pastors can have, you know, psychologies and leadership styles, which don't create good religious communities. Yeah. I don't as understand as well from a personal side, the anti-intellectualism. I can only say that. I was often told, and I hope this doesn't sound like a brag, because you'll, you'll have to hear the whole arc of this. I've often told, Greg, you're really smart in the church. And almost never did that feel like a good thing. It mm. almost felt like, you're really smart. Can you just stop that now? You know what I mean? Like, you're going to disrupt stuff if you ask questions. If you start bringing in research, that's going to disrupt things. I, yep. Or you're just kind of weird, you know, back to the junior high. Like, the junior high group that churches often are is the group of the people who don't want to get the A's in class often. And, huh. they, and they're threatened by the people who get A's, you know? Interesting. So, okay. 
bringing us back to our overall timeline. That was a nice little tangent on pastors. Loved it. Yeah. <laughs> um, are we, have we gotten through enough of the findings that we can focus on intrinsic versus extrinsic now with a little more care? Yeah, I think, I think we have, I think we've, okay. we've, we've worked a little bit with the public. I would only say, just put one more pin in that, that sometimes churches by their teaching or by their, the way they do work with specialists can actually be negative for, um, Yes. Health outcomes for society. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing about um, if you don't mind, I pontificate on intrinsic, extrinsic. Or did you want yeah, to good. Well, just remind us again: intrinsic, extrinsic. What do those mean? What's the difference? And then, yeah, just just roll. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it means a lot to me uh, as a distinction. It's a little bit like authentic and inauthentic, you know. Or yeah. um, if if this probably isn't going to mean a lot to people, but autonomous or heteronomous ways of approaching life. So the the enlightenment overall, so that we we want to follow something that actually resonates with us. John Paul Sartre uh, in existentialism said, don't have bad faith, have authentic faith, meaning do things because you really believe them. And part of the best part of the spiritual, but not religious group is they're saying, I don't want to just go to some religion that tells me what to do. And I don't really believe it. I mean, I, and the whole, I've identified this kind of picking and choosing bricolage mentality um, digital streaming, Spotify, spirituality, where yeah. you pick various aspects of things and see how they work for you. Positive of that is I've, I find my students and, uh, you know, people who are emerging adults want things to be authentic. And I'm not excluding your your demographic as well. Like they want it to resonate and be true. And that that's the essence of intrinsic religiosity. So I learned this um, from Larry Herringer, who's a psychologist here at Chico State uh, when he was doing one of the conferences I've done on theology and science and to talk about, you know, when you do these charts of health and religion, uh, I should probably go back a step. Historically, religion was seen as extremely unhealthy. I mean, that's Sigmund Freud's whole gig, you know, is right. religion is a is an illusion, right? Um, religion so is, fair. yeah, I just learned this. It's like subsumed it's repressed feelings about your mother or father, your mm-hmm. father. And then you just project that onto some God and it's really just unhealthy stuff that you should get out in psychoanalysis. Exactly. Right. So that was how, uh, psychology in some of its, uh, you know, origins was formed as an anti-religious movement. And yep. by the way, it doesn't mean that's where it is today. And for no. it is, as you know, not entirely well-respected, but there was that, there's a strong element of religion is bad for you. And if you ever go to a psych ward, which you might have already done, they'll talk about two things, sex and God all the time, right? Because when you break down those uh, conscious structures, or if you want to use Freudian language, the ego or superego, you get to this, the, the depth of our id, our unconscious is like God and sex and money and stuff, right? And so my point being, it was seen, it being religion was seen as part of being unhealthy. What has happened in the past decades is the research that we're talking about, which has actually said, no, there's a lot of healthy things that come out of religion. But Larry helped me see that when you look at let those two different kinds of psychological studies, and he, he gave us a few of them, it's really uh, the, the factor seems to be this intrinsic or en- extrinsic religiosity. Yeah. So if I go to church, we'll, we'll use that again as the model, because I want to have good business contacts because my, my mother tells me I should go right. because I want to meet girls as, as a heterosexual man, then I'm not, I'm doing it for extrinsic reasons. And if I stay with extrinsic reasons, 
it doesn't correlate with health, health. It actually correlates with unhealth. If I do it because, you know, the, the narrative that I hear is one that I believe in. It gives me meaning, gives me joy and happiness. I really actually take it, uh, I take it in the life that is being led here. And I, I'm willing to, to identify with the things that actually mean something to me in this community. Um, and maybe be honest about the things that don't, even the teaching sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. If I do it for authentic, intrinsic reasons, that is what correlates with the, these positive outcomes that uh, we're talking about, especially individually. So I think that's, a, that's an important factor in understanding these surveys and whether religion actually leads to health or not. Now, someone might be wondering, well, what's the proportion of people who are engaging in this stuff intrinsically and extrinsically? And I think we would have to conclude most people are intrinsic. Otherwise, you wouldn't find spread across, you know, the statistical group, all these benefits. If mm-hmm. most of the people were mm-hmm. there intrinsically, then you would find that religion's not good. Right. So when you're able to separate out, separate it out, you see that that's the distinction. But a lot of the studies we're talking about do not separate that out. Right. They just they just measure everybody who's religiously involved and they still find these benefits. So it's kind of a nice hedge against a judgmentalism. In fact, this is kind of a judgmentalism that I think was was somewhat encouraged in evangelicalism in me growing up, even my kind of milquetoast moderate California evangelicalism, that like there are a lot of Sunday Christians. These are people who don't come to youth group in the middle of the week. They don't have a small group. They just are a weekly or every other week kind of a, they just come to the service. Well, I think the research would show most of those people are actually coming intrinsically. Right. Uh, to right. some degree. Right. And, and maybe Keith Green's line about if I only see you Monday, uh, was it Sunday and Wednesday nights? Don't bother coming at all. Oh, my gosh. That's a really high bar. Yeah, it's uh, it's from to, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice. Um, yeah, it's exactly that that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So so maybe that was wrong. And that even even, you know, the the uh, the stereotype of the husband who's not that into it, but he gets dragged along by the wife. Well, the husband that actually shows up, maybe there are things that he is really getting out of it. Even that guy that you think is there, maybe kind of begrudgingly, maybe he's not there begrudgingly. Uh, And, and actually there's, you know, it's maybe not as much his bag as his wife and kids or something, but like, don't be sure that you know that he's just going through the motions because most people we can show with the math here, are not going through the motions. Right. That's a really interesting finding, uh, actually. I think that's really, I love that. And I I think it, it's, um, I was writing down a couple things. And one is I, I used to think as a pastor that people came to church, you know, for prayer, how to do prayer and how to read the scripture and how to get the right doctrine. And I realized that often they really come for things like the story, you know, hmm. I mean, the whole story, like yeah. come on Christmas and and there's Silent Night with the candles, or you yeah. got the Christmas pageant, you know, or an yeah. Easter, you have, uh, or maybe Palm Sunday of the palm fronds, or, you know, like these yeah. the embodied story, the story of marriage, the story of baptism, meaning the community has a story. There are these parts of life that are marked by certain things. And also the rituals, which is, I'm embedding with story here, like all those things, actually, that's why people come, I found. Many, many people yeah. come to church for those things. And those are the things that seem all really to correlate strongly with the positive outcomes. We could have a whole theological discussion, whether 
that's true Christianity or not, I tend to think, yes, it is. It may not be the fullness of what Christianity is, but yeah. it's, it's, I more validate those things than I used to. And I think it speaks to that's a, that is, that can be an intrinsic spirituality it can, or religiosity. It can be, I'm doing these things because they actually mean something to me, you know? Well, I know we're, we're coming up against our time limit here. We're already a couple minutes over, but I know that we both were interested in briefly applying COVID to this situation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. now we've gotten through a lot more of the, the nitty gritty here. And I think it's clear how just doing stuff digitally or perhaps, I mean, I think most people anticipate a pretty significant drop off in attendance once once we can fully attend, once basically we have herd immunity through vaccinations and, and, and infection recoveries, that right. actually still those numbers are going to drop in most segments of church because for whatever reason, maybe some people who were coming extrinsically will stop feeling the need because they got out of the habit, in which case we might not think that's so bad. But also people will just, people are habitual creatures and they will have enjoyed their Sunday mornings to some degree and having that space. Uh, We are a super overworked over, you know, emotionally uh, or sorry, overtaxed of our energy society and any sort of oases in the in that craziness uh, we really desperately need. And so we might, you know, be be lured by the short term benefit of that, you know, the long term benefit of that as well. So we, we anticipate a drop. I mean, what do you have a number like do you have a percentage that you are guessing? Well, the, the number that I've seen used a lot is something like 30 percent of yeah. people will not come back to church. That, that's from Barna who I tend to yeah. t- tend to like, uh, I mean, yeah. not just like, but I think it tends to do some good research. They do good work. Um, so that's, yep. that's the number I, I keep hearing about 20 to 30%, 20, maybe to 33%. So that's yeah. significant. It you is. know, it's like, again, as a pastor, I, I put in my pastor app way more times today than I thought I was going to. But, Love it. Yeah. But you just think about, you know, 20% fewer people coming. And if you're the one who's managing budgets, which really mean people's lives who are being paid by the church, Right. At least you're like, oh my gosh, that's going to really affect my staff. I'm going to have to put, you know, lay off some people. And right. that, that's one way a pastor thinks about it. But the point being, it's going to be a quite different world. And so if 30%, let's just say 30%, let's just use that figure, 30% of people don't come. I think it's going to, I think that will have some health outcomes, actually. Well, and if so, I don't know the numbers. You might know better than me. How many adults regularly attend church in the States? It's like 50 million. I think that's right. That's a number I've heard somewhere around there. It's always squishy. Yeah. So let's say it's that. And let's say that Jim Wellman is right, that these adults are essentially getting, uh, you know, therapy light for free on a weekly basis. And a third of those people stop going. That is the equivalent of 15 million people getting out of therapy just stopping their therapeutic help. And so that's 15 million families or 12, 10 million families, you know, depending on how you want to count parents or whatever households where they were receiving the equivalent of, you know, B minus psychotherapy and they just stop. So what's that do to marriages? What's that do to a relationship with children? And yeah, that's a, that's a short term consideration because of course, Maybe they will learn other healthy things as they recognize those costs. Uh, but we've gone through a lot of stuff here. We've talked about the body, the physical body. We've talked about the mind, resilience. We've talked about trauma recovery. 
Uh, we've talked about pro-social behaviors. And yeah, there maybe some of that prejudice and stuff will go down. But before you get too happy about prejudice going down, recall the news channels that most of those white Christians are watching in their free time. And, and uh, if they replace their pastor with Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, I wouldn't get too uh, – and there have been some interesting essays I've read about like this is what happens on the right without religion. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and it can turn – you know, that's where you get some of the, the white nationalist stuff and some of the darker, more xenophobic stuff because you don't have Jesus there pushing back on right. those tendencies. I mean the problem is anytime you get really conservative like that in the church, somebody might actually read the Bible and find out what Jesus is like and realize <laughs> – those don't those don't correlate, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I say that facetiously, but I've heard that happen actually. Like, well, I started reading the Bible, and Jesus cares about the poor. He goes out right. to the marginal, right? So, anyways, just to say, yeah, yeah I hear you, and I, uh, I, I think I ran over what you were saying, Dan. I, if you oh, it's fine. Or- well, I, I, you, do you have anything else to add on COVID? I want to, I want to end with like maybe just a, a look to the future of sort of pulling a, some of this, some of these threads together and imagining sort of uh, just it's its own episode that we could maybe do sometime, but the beginnings of a social, a scientifically informed church uh, model or something like that, just to the extent that it relates to what we've talked about today. But I'd also like to hear any more on sort of the, the more short-term COVID stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think COVID has had obviously some negative effects in terms of marriages, in terms of mental health, in terms of Mm -hmm. domestic you know, intimate partner violence Yeah. in terms of there's a lot of things that we've lost. I mean, we didn't even talk about touch, but just touching people. Yes. Like, I mean, Laura, my wife often reminds me in the congregation we're in, which has a lot of elderly people and it's quite small. Like some of those people are just, that's the only time they're touched. Right. Yeah. I mean, it may be so. And, and, and there's a lot of evidence that touch is really, really powerful for positive health. Right. So I think we're losing something already. And I think let's say um, that we're able to get back uh, in the second half of this year, 2021. You know, I think Biden was talking today about President Biden, about a a normal Christmas. Like that's a goal in some ways. Like, let's just say that's, that's where we are. That's somewhere in that framework. Cool. You know, it won't, I don't think the door will close on COVID. I think uh, there's a lot of reasons to suspect though. It'll be a, a little bit of a ragged ending for a while, but we may go back to something more like normal and we have fewer people in the pews. People haven't gone to church for a while. People who haven't had singing, which is another thing that's very yeah. powerful and positive, just literally singing in a group. Yeah. We, um, we also didn't talk about like kind of the more whole body, like Pentecostal style experiences right. that are yeah. super cathartic and are almost like aerobic exercise. And right. uh, that's a, that's its own kind of very psychologically interesting group of activities that we didn't even get into we that didn't. I would like to someday talk about with somebody, but yeah. I agree with you. And the, I mean, even one reason I like Episcopalian worship, which is where, where I've been worshiping when we were in, in, uh, you know, in person, I like that because there's kneeling and there's standing and, right. you know, and the, you come forward for communion. So, um, yeah, so I think we're losing that. And I think that's going to have a particular effect. I think it already ha- is having an effect. I think one of the reasons that there's a pushback, on worship services uh, being restricted um, is that is, I think we are feeling there's something we really needed about that. Oh yeah. I mean, I I'm very, I'm much more let's restrict it as long as we need to. So I come out of that side, but I, yeah, 
think people are feeling they're losing something. And- oh yeah, like we're we wouldn't go, we're in between churches, which hit us at the pregnancy COVID back to back thing. But we wouldn't go, you know, we wouldn't be going if we had one. It's not worth it right now. But I really am feeling that loss as well. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it is the ability to be with others uh, that church really provides. I mean, I'll just make a a comment as I perceive you, Dan, you're able to have lots of social connections and fairly socially adept. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you may not need it as much as some people do, but I know there are a lot of people that the, ch- the church yeah. provides something for them really, really worthwhile, you know? So that's the loss now, I think. And I think the loss we'll be feeling for the next few months still. I think it'll be a loss when people don't come back into in-person worship. As I said, I think the research that I'm reading and that it seems like you've read too suggests that it's actually the in-person part that really makes a difference. I'm not sure it's the in-person service exactly as many of us would think of it as an in-person service. Like I think there is some reason to criticize the back of the head experience of looking at a person and all you see the backs of people's heads and all that sort of stuff. But no, Uh, just being around other people. I mean, it makes me think of like the research on group therapy, right? Like just group therapy has been shown to be as effective as individual therapy on all these various metrics of like, you just have people telling their stories, you can, they are a potential mirror for you. And if there are nine other people in the group, that's nine potential mirrors, one or two of which are going to say something that all unlocks something in you and you see their body language and you're listening to them and you can give them a hug afterwards or, you know, like all that stuff is just not easily replicable over Zoom. No, 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 it isn't. And I think, Back to our evolutionary history, I think we have been evolved to be in, you know, physical proximity. Space. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. So absolutely. So I, what, for pastors, I've been thinking about this a lot and having conversations. I don't mean that in the sense of like I've done some national survey. I just my yeah. friends are pastors, and I still thinking as a pastor. I wonder what will the church look like. And the advice that I would definitely give to churches, uh, and I'm thinking of for myself is. Make sure you you lean into physical co-presence. You lean into the community. You lean into doing things together. And doing things can be singing together. It can be having a meal together. I mean, this is almost so trite. It's, it's almost not like an insight, but don't forget how good that is. Yeah. You know, don't forget how important that is. I do think rituals are, will continue to be important in, in the churches that people do that. I mean, specific rituals like the Eucharist and so on. But I wonder if there may need to be some flexibility in other aspects of the church that aren't as necessary to develop intrinsic religiosity, to develop, to really capitalize on what God gives the church through in-person worship and in-person community. So I guess I'd, I'd want to make sure pastors come out of this and they think through, how can I create a good religious community using some of the research that we're talking about? So that it actually develops people to be more and more what God creates them to be, I think. Um, And I think that means being in the same place, caring for one another, doing pro-social things, caring for those around us, connecting us with the world, and hearing the message of the gospel as a as a message that is true. uh, That I, you know, that's I'm committed to it, but also that gives us that meaningful framework for our lives and gives us hope and and uh, ultimately happiness at a really deep level. Flourishing. In a word. Flourishing. Yep. Well, we're way over time. We're well over two hours. Greg, we'll, <laughs> we'll call it there. I'll have a link to your 
specific page on this stuff for, on Science for the Church's website. And thanks for your time, man. Dan, always great to, to talk with you. And um, it's, it, it makes two hours go by really quickly. So I, know. Uh, I feel the really same does. way when you interview other people. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And thanks again for having me on your program. You snuck one more compliment in there at the very end. <laughs> you devious little bastard. All right. Thanks, Greg. All right. Thanks to Josh Gilbert, my editor, for editing this conversation. He is available for more editing work, and his email is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke. That's also in the show notes. Patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month and the patron-only Facebook group. Next week, we'll be back with an episode where I talk with two women who headed up a massive survey into evangelical sex lives and habits and attitudes with over 22,000 women. And if you think that's a lot of people to survey, you're right. That is a hell of a lot of people to survey. And they found some very interesting stuff. So if you've liked any of the purity culture, sex type episodes, definitely make sure to listen next week and we'll see you then.